0: Developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach. and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the Leadership Hacker podcast today, we have Brandon Smith, the workplace therapist. He's the founder and president of WorkSmiths, executive coach and speaker, And author of the book The Hot Sauce Principle. But before we get out to speak with Brandon, it's a Leadership of News. Have you ever avoided just putting stuff off that you know that you should be doing? Well, procrastination can be the most expensive cost in life and business, leading to stress, misunderstandings and missed opportunities. Many people put off tasks until the last minute and, according to Psychology Today, 20% of people are chronic procrastinators. More than ever, people are getting pulled in different directions and demands on time, schedules and energy are increasing. So in order to cope with the pressures of life and work, many spend excessive time tuning out non-work activities. Scrolling on social media, engaging in group gossip, reading blogs, watching TV. They are activities that make us feel better in the moment yet prevent us from taking action on our tasks. So how can we perform at peak performance levels when our self-sabotage can often hold us back? According to an article by Balkis and Duru, procrastination occurs because of a number of things, including Poor time management I like to call that self-management, by the way. A lack of motivational skills, organisational skills. Inability to concentrate. Unrealistic expectations and personal problems. A fixation on negative thinking or negative beliefs about one's capabilities. Perfectionism and anxiety and fear related also contribute to procrastination. So here are five tips for peak performance and to bust through procrastination. Number one, question yourself like you've never questioned anybody else. The voice in your head is the one voice you wake up to in the morning, but it can be questioned. So have you asked that voice in your head questions like Are you setting unrealistic expectations for yourself? Am I putting pressure on myself? What types of things are you hearing? What's the why behind what I need to do today? What are the consequences? And what are the rewards of getting this done? Take time to just keep asking those questions You'll find the answers 2. You might be familiar with the Eisenhower Matrix Often called urgent and important matrix In a time where everything is urgent and important, the reality isn't really that true. So many of our tasks and deadlines can be adjusted or renegotiated. And a powerful strategy that can help us do that is the Eisenhower Matrix. There are four quadrants that help label tasks. Urgent and important, urgent less important, less important and urgent, and less urgent and less important. So identify which of the tasks go into which quadrant, which will help focus your energy, time, and attention. Number three is called the one minute method. Start something for one minute. All it takes to get into action and get moving is one minute, 60 seconds. Jump in, regardless of how you're feeling, and start that task before you're ready. Many people think too much and take too little action. Set your timer for 60 seconds and take action. Number four, I call the bracelet technique. And I learned this technique while studying neuro-linguistic programming. Start out by getting an elastic or rubber band and wear it on your wrist, like a bracelet. And every time you find yourself putting something off or thinking negative thoughts, snap that elastic or rubber band on your wrist. This act associates physical pain with negative thoughts and procrastination. It can be an effective way to overcome procrastination and the negative thoughts that sometimes come along with it. And number five, the timeline. Can setting deadlines and timelines really help when overcoming procrastination? Well, according to a study mentioned in the Psychological Science Journal, it's been reported that setting deadlines does in fact improve the ability to complete a task. Self-imposed and external deadlines are really quite effective. Play a game with yourself. Run an experiment and set a small internal deadline to see if you can complete it in a specific amount of time. A little competition between you and your internal voice in your head. And your words and actions can be fun. And it also turns out that procrastination is actually a mindset. So if we think we can do it, in the time we have and we can do it now and it won't cause us discomfort we're more likely to do it and if we think we can't guess what you're probably right so the leadership lesson here is when you're engaging with your team and the people that work with you think about and observe are they holding back something are they procrastinating and if so how can you help them engage the voice in their head how through the power of questions can you help them unlock their thinking so they can really hit peak performance that's been the leadership hacker news if you have any news stories insights you know where to find us through our social media we look forward to hearing from you our special guest on today's show is brandon smith he's the founder and president of the worksmiths he's an executive coach speaker and author of the book the hot sauce principle brandon welcome to the leadership hacker podcast steve i am thrilled to be on the show today me too. It's been a real challenge for us to get our calendars to connect since the last time we spoke, but the yes. world's a very different place too, to be fair, right?
1: That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. You know, it's funny. I used to think to myself, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good about predicting what's going to happen. Yeah. The last uh, 18 months have been very humbling for me. Indeed. So I've, I've, th- I've thrown out my crystal ball and it's just, you know, we'll, we'll just take it as it comes.
0: Exactly right. Now, I remember from the first time we met, you have a really kind of tragic slash challenging kind of upbringing that really kind of led you on the path to what you're doing now for so the listeners that haven't had the chance to meet with you and perhaps you can just give them a little bit of that backstory
1: sure sure so um so I was the youngest of three boys both my older brothers were adopted my parents were told they couldn't have children and and uh, surprise i I showed up and uh, so both my older brothers were 12 and 11 years older than me so I would always tell folks, you know, if you've ever had older brothers like that, you, you know what the inside of a dryer looks like. <laughs> um, you know, what it's like to have someone say, don't ask questions, just drink it. That's what older brothers do to little brothers. Um, and my life was, you know, when I look back on it, I would say generally I feel grateful. But there were some times in my life where it was very dysfunctional at home. My older, oldest brother, Chris. He was in and out of either jail or rehab centers my entire life growing up. And when he was home, there was a lot of yelling and screaming in my house. Uh, and so when I was 10, he uh, he ran away from a rehab center and he was living with us. And he just decided life was too hard. And uh, uh, he, took his, he took his life one night. And it was very, very tragic and very, very um, uh, challenging for all of us. In fact, it was so challenging for, for me that within about six months of that happening, I came down with an uncontrollable stutter. So I couldn't speak in public at all. And so every day before school, I would go in and see my speech therapist. Early in the morning, I'd work on my B's and my P's and my T's, the letters that would always trip me up. And then I'd go on to the school day. So um, between growing up with that dysfunction in my house and then the way kids with stutters are treated at school, um, I made a kind of a conscious or unconscious decision that I just wanted to distance myself from people. They were just way too dysfunctional. And so that's, that's kind of how I went through high school and then all the way into college and university. I just kind of kept myself kind of arm's distance. Um, Well, ironically enough, I ended up majoring in communications uh, at at university and uh, I went on and and like most communication majors, I couldn't find a job after graduation. And I took a job um, in a small chain of retail stores. It was a family owned business. The woman who started the business had 15 stores and I was going to be the assistant manager at one of these stores. And and my boss was the son-in-law of the the owner. So her daughter marries this guy, he's my boss. So on my first day of real work, so I'd worked other jobs before, but this was my first day post-university, full-time job. I show up at the store, he greets me at the door and he says, I'm so glad you're here. Before you get started, I have a task for you. Waiting for you in the back room is the current assistant manager of the store, but he does not know you're coming. So your job is to go back there and fire him and you get his job. Wow. And that was the, for my first task on my first day of work. And that was how my manager rolled. He would—he loved to do everything that we, we know as kind of, uh, of really followers and lovers of, of leadership. He would do everything that's opposite of what we believe to be true and good about leadership. He loved to do surprise visits to try and catch people doing the wrong thing. I had to do more layoffs of people in that first six months of that job than any other time in my career. Um, and so I, that kind of experience really woke me up, May, made me really, really realize three things about my life. First, um, work should not have to suck. It should be a, a place for fulfillment and purpose and meaning for all of us. It shouldn't be a place of anxiety and depression and worry. I mean, it is work, it's not perfect, but it, it should have all those positive things, not those negative things. We, we we can't always choose the families we get, but we can choose our workplaces. We have a lot more control over that. Second, if, if my my boss was any indication of the state of leadership in the world. I really want to change that. I want to improve how we lead other people and the, the impact we can have on workplaces. And third, that was where my purpose was born. Uh, I, I decided in that moment I wanted to eliminate um, all workplace dysfunction uh, everywhere forever, uh, uh, having no idea what I'd signed up for, Steve. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went on and pursued a clinical therapy degree and and uh, practiced in the clinical world for many years, and then also uh, then pivoted and, and got my MBA to kind of uh, balance uh, those two things. So it's my my version of kind of chocolate and peanut butter c- c- combined. C- somehow it works, uh, and that was where my handle of kind of the workplace therapist was born. So that's 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 a little bit of my journey that kind of got me on the path that I've been
0: on. And having met with you and looked at some of the work and spent some time looking at your, uh, your book, there is a real purpose behind this. This is not something that someone is doing for a job. You are doing this because intrinsically it's something that you want to eradicate, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We have enough challenges in life. You know, we, if we can make work not one of them, that would be a really great thing.
0: Yeah. So what do you think the reason is that there is so much then dysfunction in the workplace today? there's always been dysfunction
1: in the workplace for one primary reason. We bring our own stories to work. We bring our own histories. We bring our own family dramas and, 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 and family plays to work. And so, you know, we, we, we put that on other people. So that's always been true about us as human beings. So that's always going to be a challenge. But you used an interesting word in that. You said, why is it so challenging today? So today's a little different time in the workplace. So what I've right. what I've experienced and you've experienced is it doesn't matter where in the world we, we meet somebody. There's two things that are true about our workplace today. Time is our most precious resource. It's not money, it's time. And everything feels urgent all the time. And that creates a whole other set of dysfunctions that fall along with that. Because when we're rushing and everything feels urgent, we don't spend time giving positive feedback to our team members. We don't uh, get to know them or, or look to align with other leaders in the organization. Uh, It causes a lot more challenges, particularly with with communication. So there there are some interesting challenges, and we could go even further down the rabbit hole of working remotely uh, on some some of the challenges there. But there there are some real interesting uh, opportunities, let's say, for our workplaces today.
0: And the world has changed as we've moved to more of a hybrid world, working from either our desks or our homes or a combination of both. Have you seen a change to how people are responding in that environment? Yes, absolutely. So in the first
1: six weeks, two months of this event, everyone around the world probably said something to, to this effect. Well, you know, this isn't so bad. I just picked up two or three hours in my day. I'm not commuting. So I can kind of wake up in the morning, have some coffee, maybe a little bit of breakfast, and then hop on my first meeting at 9 a.m. At some point around that six-week mark, eight-week mark, everyone realized everyone wasn't commuting. And they start scheduling meetings at 8.30 in the morning, 8 in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, six o'clock at night, 6.30 at night. Right. Yeah. So now when I talk to my clients, one of the challenges they say, they said, I don't know how I'm going to go back to the office because I have standing meetings at seven thirty, eight in the morning. That's when I'd be commuting. And and, and I, I have meetings during lunch. So we, we've packed our days even more full with all these meetings. And so that's the first one. Second, um, I hear constant uh, kind of, complaints from folks about being on camera all day long and the strain that's putting on them. I think that's the second one. Um, the third one is uh, people just aren't con- able to really fully connect. It's hard to build relationships in in a, in, a, in a, over Zoom or Teams or whatever platform you use. Those meetings tend to default to more tasky operational things. Then let's catch up about how your weekend was. We often do those over meals and we haven't been able to do that. So it's hard to build those relationships. I, I've met a lot of people. I know you have too, that have started a new with a new employer within the last um, year, and they have not even ever met their coworkers yet. Right. Exactly. Let alone let alone go into an office. Um, so I would say those are all some of the some of the, those three at least would apply to everybody that's that's been working remotely. There's there's been some real real
0: challenges around that. And the principle of everything being urgent all of the time has been expedited because of that, right? That's right.
1: That's right. It's very it's very difficult to tell what really matters and what doesn't matter yeah um, and, and because there's constant constant change and and we, we could we could attribute some of this to um, technology we're always available and on call all the time. We could also attribute some of this to general global media uh, you know, there's there's definitely a a frenzy when regardless of what media you listen it, it definitely heightens that sense of anxiety. And urgency really is that urgency is
0: anxiety so it's there's there, we're living in a
1: very anxious time right
0: now of course, the only one person that can control that is ourselves. Uh, well said. Well yeah. said. Now, you wrote the book, The Hot Sauce Principle, How to Live and Lead in a World Where Everything is Urgent All of the Time. So what is the hot sauce principle?
1: So it's a really simple analogy from now on for everyone listening to this. When you think of urgency, I want you to think of hot sauce. And why that analogy works so well is because, you know, I, I love hot sauce personally. I, I really do. If I put a little bit of hot sauce on something. It adds flavor. It adds focus, it adds, it adds, it adds spice, it, it really makes it stand out. And so urgency by itself is not a bad thing. It, it, it's, it really prioritize things. But if everything that's coming out of the leadership kitchen is covered in hot sauce, the appetizer, the salad, the entree, the brownie, the, the iced tea that you're drinking, uh, at least in the US, we, we, we drink a lot of iced tea here. If all that's covered in hot sauce, your mouth's going to be on fire. You're not going to be able to taste anything and you're going to be overwhelmed. And so that's really why the idea is so um, sticky because we want to make sure we're very thoughtful and intentional about what we're putting hot sauce on for our teams, but also pushing back if, if our leaders are putting hot sauce on everything because it makes everything a priority, which then means nothing's a priority. The other reason why this is also such a great analogy is you know, we know our teams, some members of our team just need a drop or two of hot sauce and they, they've got it, they know what they need to do and they're off and running. We've got other members of our team that need a bottle or two Really get them moving. So knowing your people and knowing how much urgency they need is another uh, kind of important element around that analogy.
0: I love it. Uh, it's really. Uh, I'm am quite a visual guy and therefore and olfactory. So I can you know see this and taste this and smell it and and therefore it's a really great analogy to to let leaders know that actually you're holding the hot sauce bottle most of the time as well, right?
1: That's exactly right. That's that's exactly right. And what and what you choose to put hot sauce on. Uh, and how much you choose to use is going to either create an amazing, wonderful dish, or you're absolutely going to ruin the whole lot. So it's just a it's
0: a good it's a good image for leaders. So here's the thing: it's a really fine line between urgency and panic. How do you differentiate the two? And maybe how do you recognize it even?
1: So I'll tell you a story to illustrate that point.
0: So I was having a conversation with a client
1: of mine some years ago around this idea, this analogy, and he was an entrepreneur. He owned a, a marketing business. And he was probably one of the most anxious guys I've ever met. And and so kind of unusual to be an entrepreneur. I mean, he he was almost shaking when I'd meet him. He was just so wound up. And when I spoke to the folks in his organization, they said, you know, we really like him. He's a really nice guy, but he makes everything urgent all the time. And it's really creating burnout around here. I mean, to your point, it's, it's like panic. So I told him this analogy. Well, on his own, after our conversation, he went to the grocery store and he bought three bottles of hot sauce and he put them on his desk. One, two, three. And whenever there was a new project or initiative, when he was assigned that to a member of his team, he would hand them one of the bottles of hot sauce and he'd instruct them to keep the bottle of hot sauce on their desk, representing the importance and urgency of that initiative. And until the project was done, they had to keep the hot sauce bottle there. But once it was done, they had to return the hot sauce bottle to him. Here was the beautiful thing that kind of gets to your your question. He only had three bottles he could give out. So because he only had three bottles, that was like a forcing mechanism for him. So he he was able to prioritize, but he couldn't create panic because he didn't have an infinite number of bottles. So any way you can limit the number of bottles you put out or the number of hot sauce items you you create, that will help to keep it on the urgency side and not tip to panic.
0: And what do you notice in people's response, either through their verbal or nonverbal communication might help you recognize as a leader if you've gone too far and you've you've nudged into the panic zone
1: so the panic zone by itself is is not as concerning as the apathy zone that's where you get past panic so we've passed panic and now we're in we're we're now into full-on burnout and that's when the people are just apathetic so no matter how much hot sauce you put on them they just respond in the same way that's when you know you've you've gone too far yeah so another another way that that Another analogy around this is I've often heard um, uh, working today in our workplaces, it's almost like you have to think of it like interval training, high intensity interval training. So you're, you're, you're running or pushing or exercising for, to a, at a high intensity, but then, at, then you need to take time to rest and then do it again, time to rest, and then do it again in time to rest. And of course, the challenge with our workplaces today is there, there's, no, there's no time to rest. So another way that we can manage panic is make sure that, you know, if you are pushing your team really hard on something that's urgent, give them a little bit of a pause before you immediately throw another urgent item on them.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to the apathy bit, because something you said that really struck a chord with me. Most people, when they hear apathy, would maybe have a thought process or a connotation of somebody who is lazy, disengaged, and not the opposite, which you described as going past panic, And I wondered what you'd noticed and how that might have played out for you when you've coached your clients.
1: So when we think about love, the the, the opposite of love is not is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. We're we're no longer invested. So that's why when you get to that place, it's a really dangerous place to be because you've, you've lost your people. They're no longer invested. They're no longer committed. They've got nothing left. They feel like it doesn't matter how hard they try. It's never enough. They've almost given up, at least um, emotionally and maybe even mentally. So that's a real, real uh, dangerous spot to be because when I see clients get to that place, really the best antidote for them is to take a vacation or holiday. They they need to take some time away to reset and recharge. And often it takes at least two weeks. uh, And the more time they can take off, the better just to... Because because it takes at least a week to get that apathy out of your system right. and start to really reconnect to what's important to you in life and 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 what really matters to you, but you need that space. So uh, it's my hope would be that leaders don't push their folks that far because uh, it it's, it's it takes time to recover from that.
0: And most of it, of course, from a leadership perspective, in my observation in any case, is this isn't a, an intentional thing that leaders do. It's, it's often very unintentional as a byproduct of their behavior or too much urgency, right? That's, that's exactly right. And I'd say the, the
1: biggest culprits in this would be your uh, publicly traded um, companies, because what they do is the, you know, the, because of the way the markets move, the markets put pressure on them to change quickly and transform. So then the C-level executives make everything urgent all the time and pat themselves on the back and say, I'm a great leader. I just pushed lots of urgency into the system. And all they've done is just given the, the organization an overdose of anxiety. And so then that goes down to the next level of leaders who push it down to the next level of leaders who push it down to the next level of leaders. And it just kind of funnels all the way through. And, and so it's just, it's a real dangerous place for us to be. And so if if if, if more leaders can be conscious of how much they're doing of this, it can be good for not only performance because it creates more focus, but the overall health and well-being of everyone in that organization.
0: And I suspect that also then contributes to more dysfunction in the workplace.
1: Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And funny when you said dysfunction, the first word that came to mind for me was kind of a close synonym to that, which was chaos. Yeah, A lot of chaos, a lot of chaos. Because again, there's, if everything's urgent, nothing's urgent. It's, it's, just, it's just chaos. There's no focus. Um, and then it becomes really hard to to know what to work on, to align and do all the other things that we need to do.
0: Yeah, indeed. And in your book, I love the fact that you call this out is a, uh, you have an emotional booster shot. Love you to share with our listeners what an emotional booster shot is and how might they want to go ahead and get one.
1: So let's think about how you can do it for yourself. So we could t- when we talk about an emotional booster shot, um, think of it as resilience. We really want to try and help ourselves have more more resilience, be be kind of stronger, almost more flexible, like like, almost like stretching. We're going to stretch if we use the analogy again of of, a workout. Okay. so there's a couple of ways we can do that. Um, First, um, we can reframe the situation. So when when you're when your people are pushing down more urgency on you, you can reframe the situation uh, as this is not a crisis. We're going to get through this. And even you do that with your teams, communicate that we can overcome this. Second one is we can um, think of it as a learning opportunity. I'm going to learn and grow through this. Uh, it may be really hard and challenging, but I'm going to get stronger uh, and it's going to help me, help me grow. Um, and the third way we can look at this is um, kind of how, how can we maintain kind of hope that, that, that things are going to turn out better on the other end of this, that everything's going to kind of work out for a reason. Uh, there was a famous theologian at Emory University named Jim, named Jim Fowler, and he used to have this beautiful saying you would say, as leaders, we want to give people hope and handles. And I just think that's so beautiful. Hope and handles. Love it, yeah. So what's the future going to look like? And what can we do right now to move kind of further down that path? So those are all ways that you can reframe it for yourself. uh, But also think about how you can use those same techniques with your team.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love the principle of... Hope and handles, and hope is a word that we sometimes quite uncomfortable in business using because it has this notion of being not grounded in purpose and not grounded in something because it's it's hopeful. But actually, that's where most vision and purpose drives from, right?
1: I agree with you 100%. Hope feels like it's out of our control, but if anything, over the last 18 months has taught us there's a lot of things out of our control. Uh, And so it's okay to be hopeful. We're we're hopeful that we'll be seeing our, uh, that we we can meet our teams again by the first of the year. We're hopeful that, you know, life will start to resume some sense of normal by 2022. Hope is a good thing.
0: So how do you see the future of work playing out as the workplace therapist and in the work that you do with organizations, with worksmiths? What do you think the future of work will look like for us and how might we want to adapt for that?
1: So here's what I hope it's going to look like. I hope that we, we've we learned a lot from how we've learned to work together over the last 18 months and we carry that with us into the new future. So I think hybrid workplaces are very healthy things. Uh, that said, I still think we need that time uh, with each other. So I, I'm I'm really worried about the organizations that say, oh, we're going to go virtual from now on. I, I've worked with f- fully virtual organizations before that were virtual even before the pandemic. Uh, and they have a whole set of dysfunctions that are very difficult to cure. Uh, and there's largely two of them. One, um, they they really struggle with alignment because they don't ever get in the same room with each other. They're they're virtual. Uh, and two, um, they're really stro- They struggle with giving each other po- um, uh, positive intent, assuming positive intent. Um, so when they give each other feedback, some of the feedback in those organizations is absolutely brutal because they just don't know each other. So I still think we need those times and moments to meet each other in person for collaboration innovation, and frankly, just connecting over a meal. Uh, That's always been important to us as human beings. So I wouldn't want to lose that. But if we can bring in technology, I think it could allow people to have better work-life balance, uh, better well-being, uh, and a lot more care and compassion for each other.
0: Yeah, I agree. It comes back down to compassion is a massive driver here, isn't it? The more we understand about people, the more we can empathize and the more we can adapt ourselves.
1: Absolutely, and just and just hearing you say that, Steve, it reminds me, you know, now we've been given the gift of being invited into a lot of our coworkers' homes, at least virtually. You know, we 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 may see their children, we may see their pets on 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 camera. We we may we may be talking to them in their kitchen, uh, and they're dressed more casually, uh, and so we've learned more about their lives. And I think that's a really good thing.
0: Do you think we'll have a return to the future moment at some point in the future where we? become more connected and go back to being more office and location focused?
1: I, I do think so, but I think that is going to be uh, not nine to five Monday through Friday. I, I don't I don't see that for most uh, workers that are able to work virtually. Now, there's always going to be jobs out there where you don't have the opportunity to work virtually. You're, you're, you're a frontline worker, You so you've, you've got to be on site. But for those jobs that allow for virtual work and collaboration, I I think a hybrid is likely. I I don't think there's going to be a lot of organizations that are going to require everyone to be back in the office nine to five if there's options.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that how for so many decades we got into a routine of doing things. And within 18 months, the whole work environment has completely changed.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And most organizations that were really nervous about that change Their fear was, I won't be able to see my people working. They're not going to be. So therefore, they won't be working there. And it's going to lower productivity. And all the research that has come out has actually shown increase in productivity with people working from home. So uh, the good news is that that fear wasn't wasn't valid. Um, But again, how we carry that forward is going to be the real challenge.
0: Yeah, it's going to be the game changer, isn't it? So that we don't move beyond Urgency into panic, and we maintain that trust and work life balance, as you called it. Absolutely so. Mm-hmm. So, what's the focus of the work with Worksmiths and for, for you now, Brandon?
1: Well, um, yeah, thanks for asking. So, I've always still had my practice, which is the Worksmiths. It's still probably very similar to you. Uh, I'm an executive coach um, and I work with co- individual co- clients as well as teams, um, and I also uh, teach and facilitate sessions on helping people become better as leaders. And that work really hasn't gone away. That's still uh, been through, even through the pandemic, there's still been a lot of leaders and teams that have needed that extra support and counsel. Um, The one additional change uh, is I co-founded another business this past year called uh, um, the Leadership Foundry. Uh, And what we do there is we do leadership development, all virtual, but with cohorts of leaders. So that's been a big change because a lot of organizations still want to develop their leaders, by, ne- by necessity, it's going to have to be done virtually. Right. But what we, what we found is it's actually a lot easier to coordinate. You can easily schedule a two-hour session. You don't have to find a, a big meeting room or hotel ballroom or whatever it happens to be a location to get everyone in. And and you can give people kind of small doses of, of leadership tools and training to kind of keep them nourished and supported. So that's been a new evolution that I've really enjoyed kind of exploring over the last year.
0: Great stuff. And, uh, and congratulations on the new venture as well.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So there's a subtle shift to the tone now as so we're going to start to hack into your leadership brain. Okay. And my job as a leadership hacker is to grab hold of those great ideas, tips, tools, or ideas. Okay. So if you had to wrap your arms around your extensive career and narrow that down to be your top three leadership hacks, what would they be? So the first one, and this is order of priority.
1: First one is drive clarity. You can prevent 50% of dysfunction in your workplace by setting clear expectations, not only of yours, but also of the person that you're working with. What do they expect of you? Whether it's your boss, your customer, your, your direct report. So clarity is, the, from my perspective, is the first job of any leader is for her or him to drive clarity. Um, second, uh, I think it's really important that kind of leaders look to continue to find opportunities to connect and spend time with their people. That consistency is really, really important. So we've got another kind of letter C here. Consistency is really important. So making sure that you're consistent in your rhythm and your meetings with people, that's really important. And, and that goes out the window when everything feels urgent all the time. There was a group of researchers and they did work on studying uh, kind of what's the most dysfunctional kind of leader to work for. Um, And I expected them to come back with the angry, yelling and screaming boss or the um, micromanager. None of those were the worst. The the number one worst was uh, the one who is highly inconsistent because you don't know what you're going to get. So the more we can be consistent with our messaging and consistent with our meetings, the better. Um, and, and the third is just probably a really simple, easy, tactical thing that uh, all leaders can do, all, all individual contributors can do, uh, be highly, highly responsive. There was, a, there was a piece of research that found the, the, the thing that separated the, the best managers from everyone else is they were highly responsive to all of their people on their team. And that communicated that they valued their people and respected their people. So if we're, if we drive clarity, we're very, very consistent and highly responsive. It, it's going to really create a strong team environment and, and it's going to prevent a lot of dysfunction.
0: I love it. It's really simple, but very, very effective uh, advice. Thank you for sharing that, Brandon. Of
1: course. Of course.
0: Next on show, we call Hack to Attack. So in essence, this is where something hasn't worked out well, it might have even been quite catastrophic. But as a result from that experience, it's now a learning and a positive in your life or work. So what would be your hack to attack?
1: So I would say probably the the, the number one for me, I, you know, I, thinking about the way you say that, I, there are so many, Steve, gosh, um, things I've learned from, missteps that I've made along along the journey. Uh, I would say there was one, um, and, and this was probably more, more driven out of fear. So early in my career as a workplace therapist, I, I kind of straddled the fence. I, I taught part-time in multiple universities, and then, of course, I also did my my coaching and, and, and um of leadership development practice so I, I kind of lived in both worlds and what i found was the university world was a very political world um and it actually limited a lot of my other opportunities because it was one that uh consumed a lot of my time um but there was there was fear of leaving that because not only would i maybe lose some of the uh credential i lose some of that stability uh and and ultimately i made the decision to to do it and it was it was scary um it ended up working out for the best, but I would say the the learning in that was I probably waited a good five to ten years too long to do that. So uh if I could go back in time, I would probably say, Wow, Brandon, you you should have probably done that a little bit differently.
0: It's really interesting. You're not the first person on this show, and certainly in the, the many leaders I've worked and coached over the the past 10 or 15 years have also said that it's sometimes the fear that holds us back and the stability and and not being comfortable with discomfort that stops us moving forward right
1: that that that, that's exactly right i've always heard this this adage that you know um when you say yes to something you're saying no to something else Mm, yeah And, and 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 the opposite was true in this situation if i say no to that that means i can say yes to a lot of other things but the scary thing was I didn't see what those things were. It wasn't like I had a whole bunch of things I could choose from. It was, I had nothing to choose from. So I was kind of creating this, this vacuum or this void, hoping that it would be filled. Uh, so there's that word hope again. Uh, and, and luckily, it did.
0: Of course, you can't sometimes even see those things until you've said no and the yes appears, right?
1: That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah,
0: really fascinating. Love it. So the last thing we get to do today is give you an opportunity to do some time travel and you get to bump into Brandon at 21 and give him some advice. What would be your words of wisdom?
1: Okay, here's probably, gosh, I have a couple.
0: Um,
1: one, I would say, make sure you're, I, here's, here's what I would tell the younger Brandon. I'd say, younger Brandon, um, really watch the relationships that you're in, personal and professional, and make sure you don't stay in some of them too long. So that's been a big learning I had. I had a a business partner for some years that I worked with. A wonderful man, wonderful guy, brilliant man, not a very good business partner. I stayed in that too long. I've had some other folks along the way that I've been, you know, stayed in too long that ended up limiting. So I would say, you know, make sure that all the relationships you're in are are always healthy and are getting you what you need and you're giving them what they need. The second one I would say is, write your book sooner, Brandon. You don't need (laughs) to wait until you're, 46 to write it you can you can write it sooner it's it's okay
0: yeah there is this strange notion isn't there about putting pen to paper that you have to have this inordinate legacy of a career behind you to share your lessons whereas when I coach some very young leaders now they already have some fantastic lessons that need to be shared and that comes back I think to your point around fear saying no opening another yes and vice versa right
1: right exactly exactly and then of course with something like a book that a bigger project like that, that that you're that no one else is putting on your plate you're putting on your own plate you've got to be really intentional with your time and block that off and you know manage that which was a hard thing for me i, I struggled with that for many years until i finally hired a book coach to hold me accountable yeah so great yeah
0: so is there a book too
1: there is a book too i'm working on a second one right now uh, it'll be out at the end of the year i'm really really excited about it i don't i don't want to give i don't want to spoil it yet but i i think it's going to be so incredibly helpful for leaders very practical easy to use help them learn how to sit in the right seats with their with their leader and and with their team so ultimately uh it'll get them um, using their time in the way they should be
0: awesome well we'll make sure you, we get you back on the show so you can tell us a little bit more about it near the time
1: that sounds fantastic
0: so beyond today we want to make sure our listeners can stay connected with you Where's the best place for us to send them?
1: The best place, frankly, is just go to uh, the workplace therapist. Um, I'm the only one. So if you just Google the workplace therapist, it will you'll, you'll naturally go to me. Uh, and so that's that's a site that's got free resources. It's got blogs and articles and and podcasts for my show that that folks can listen to to help their workplaces become smoother and better less bumpy. Um, And then, of course, if if they're interested in anything beyond that, then uh, there's links uh, on that site that will take them to either the WorkSmiths or the Leadership Foundry. But uh, the Workplace Therapist is the best place to start. And if you haven't bought a copy of the book, The Hot Sauce Principle, uh, How to Live and Lead in a World Where Everything is Urgent All the Time, uh, you can find that on Amazon and uh, lots of other places as well. So uh, that's another opportunity.
0: Awesome. We'll make sure they're in our show notes as well. Okay, thank you. And I'd just like to say thanks, Brendan. I think we've just had just enough hot sauce today to get everything <laughs> spiced up. So you've done an, a brilliant job in the time that we've had together. I've always enjoyed talking with you. And just thanks for being part of our community at the Leadership Hacker Podcast. Steve, this has been
1: absolutely fantastic. Please keep up the great work. I know you're doing so much good in the world.
0: Thank you very much, Brendan. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in to. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.